It has been 20 years since September 11, 2001. On that day, four coordinated attacks were carried out by terrorists, resulting in the deaths of 2,996 people and injuring 6,000 more. Most of those who perished were civilians, with the exception of 343 firefighters, 72 law enforcement officers, and 55 military personnel. Today, as we remember 9-11, we want to share the story of Cliff Stabner, who now lives in Milton, Delaware. Cliff was with Rescue 3, a specially trained unit of firefighters with FDNY. Two days before 9-11, Cliff was injured in a structure fire. He was scheduled to work the morning of 9-11, but instead had to report to the hospital for an exam so he could be released to return to active duty. That morning, every man on duty with Rescue 3 was killed. Normally, after an injury requiring a hospital visit, Cliff would see the doctors early so he could beat the city traffic and get in a full day on the job. On September 11th, for some reason, he decided to go in later. When word reached the hospital that the World Trade Center had been hit by a plane, all the firefighters waiting for their exams grabbed their gear and rushed to the site. They were all killed when the towers collapsed. Cliff avoided death twice that morning, but as soon as he heard what was happening, he rushed into the city to help. I got there probably somewhere between a half an hour, 45 minutes, I guess, of the second tower collapsing. It, it was, I, I thought I had seen, you know, I, I worked in EMS in New York City for a few years after I got out of the Army, and then I was a police officer in New York City, and then I went to the fire department. So I thought I had seen pretty much everything New York City could throw at a person. But that was just so surreal. It was something out of a uh, out of a bad movie. Um, I remember running up. We had to come down the east side of Manhattan around the tip. And then we were running up West Street towards the collapse. And we passed the uh, wheel and the landing gear of an airplane in the middle of the street. And I turned to one of the guys next to me and I said, this is beyond comprehension. And uh, when we got there, the, the thing that I remember mostly was that it was eerily quiet, except for um, uh, firemen have a thing called a pass alarm on their packs. And when you lay motionless for uh, a short amount of time, it's designed to go off. And this way other firefighters can find you. And all I can remember was the sounds of these pass alarms going off, but it was just eerily quiet. Um, you know, you expected to see hundreds of people running around hurt, and that, that wasn't to be. And um, just for your mind to take in the comprehension of 210-story buildings now laying on the ground, uh, it, it basically puts you into shutdown mode, and then you just have to go into, I, I guess, a, a mental state of just, I got to function here. Yeah. The the early days of it, I remember vividly specific instances of things happening, but it kind of turns into almost like a fog. We were there a majority of the time for 10 months until it was cleaned up. How many friends did you lose that day? Uh, well, I lost 343 brothers. Um, the New York Times had a centerfold uh, one day, and they had all 343 firefighters um, <clears throat> pictures listed in there. And I took a Sharpie, a highlighter, and I just colored in the guys that I, you know, had a friendship with. 
Um, my roommate uh, at the time was um, one of them, and um, it was over a hundred. Mm. It was a hundred guys, and uh, that in itself is something that's that's difficult to grasp because when we lose a friend or a loved one, it usually happens one at a time, thankfully, and we get a chance to process it and grieve it. And in this particular case, when there's so many of your friends gone all at once, and then you have a task in front of you like helping to, to do the recovery, um, you really don't get a chance to grieve your friends. You know, you just take it as, oh, well, he died too. Yeah, um, you're sitting there digging, and another guy will come up and say, oh, so-and-so died. And it's just, uh, it's hard to describe the feeling when you just process that. It's just like a little bit of information, and you put it aside. What kept you going? What kept us going was one, we, we had to recover not only our brothers, but everybody that was there. I mean, the eyes of the world were upon us, but more importantly, um, we had families that over a period of time, I guess everybody kind of, without wanting to admit it, they admitted it, like, it, it's very... Uh, it's very unlikely that you know we're going to have anybody come out of here, and it changed subtly from a rescue effort to a recovery effort. And I'm thankful for that because um, each one, in his own mind, realized like, okay, this you know now we're just trying to bring peace to the families. Um, they want some physical, um, something physical that they can they can have a funeral for and have a resting place for and go and visit. When we would leave at night, in the very beginning, like in the first few days, we didn't. We slept on park benches and stuff and ate at the Red Cross tents. But eventually we would leave at night and, you know, return back in the morning. There were crews working 24 hours, so it's not like everybody left and they closed it down. I mean, there was constantly someone there. But I remember sitting on, uh, was standing on the fire truck. And as we were going up West Street in the, at night, and people were lined up all along West Street, from Lower Manhattan, almost all the way up past through Harlem. And they were holding candles and they were waving American flags and stuff. And we were had a, our heads sticking out of the top of the truck just to get fresh air and get the dust out of our eyes. But I'll never forget the feeling of everybody waving the flags and holding the candles and cheering us. And in retrospect, I think that's what refueled our gas tanks every day to keep us going back the next day um, was just the kindness that everybody showed that you know the, the unity that everybody showed you know we weren't torn by political strife or um, things like that we were just all American citizens we were all humans is what you know is, is what it boiled down to and I remember thinking what a great world this would be. I mean, everybody could just, and, and it showed that we had the potential to act that way towards each other. Um, and it's just kind of sad that, you know, that, that gets pushed down and then people react to what's going on in politics or uh, whatever is good for you or your political party or whatever. But in essence, we all possess the ability to put that away and act kindly towards each other. And that's, I think, what kept us going. We're talking to Cliff Stabner. Cliff was a, a fireman, New York uh, City fireman, Rescue 3, and uh, on 9-11. And uh, so, Cliff, you retired um, a medical, uh, I guess, right? Yes. A yeah. lung, a lung some problem with your lungs, which lung is, issue, yeah. is common. Yeah, there were many, many of us. That, um, yeah. Cliff now lives in uh, Lewis. Mm-hmm. And um, what has happened uh, in your life since then? This 
uh, has to be something you think about every day. I would assume that you went through uh, some why me, Lord. You, you survived twice that day and when a lot of your, your friends didn't, and I'm sure that, that impacted you. So can you tell us what is, you know, since you moved down here, what, uh, what have you had to deal with and, and where are you now? Um, probably the, the biggest thing I had to deal with is um, while you're still around uh, in New York and you're still around firefighters and stuff and people that went through it with you, um, they understand. You know what I mean? You can go to counselors, you can go to other people, and people can try and help you. But um, not that I'm comparing what we went through to what a combat veteran would go through, because I, I don't believe there is any comparison with what um, combat veterans go through. But they understand that these are your brothers. You know, they walk the walk. They walked in your boots for a while. And when I came down here, um, that was removed. So then some issues started uh, arising, and um, eventually my, um, my wife at the time uh, said to me, maybe you want to get some help. And I went, and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress syndrome. Due to just a lot of spiritual and psychological issues and stuff, like I said, you know, unfortunately I ended up getting divorced, but uh, I was blessed enough to meet my wife, Lynn, um, about 10 years ago. She's a she's a good woman. She's a, she's a really really good woman. She's a Christian woman, and uh, she helped me through a lot of this stuff um, psychologically and emotionally and stuff like that. And then through um, through her work, um, she's a hospice nurse. But through her work, I met a, a family, and um, I met a gentleman who um, I started hunting with. We just had some conversations about hunting, and then eventually we talked about. Um, the Lord and and uh, I had been born and raised, um, you know, a Christian. Um, I uh, a Catholic actually. I went through twelve years of Catholic school, and I just never seemed um, during my time. Um, I don't want to say as a Catholic because that that doesn't sound right, but I had never personally developed a um, a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, from my own doing. I guess the tools were presented to me, but I never availed myself of them. And then I met this man and we started talking about hunting and Jesus and uh, something just seemed to click. Um, we'd go to church together and uh, I was up at Crossroads uh, for church one day and Pastor Betts, Rick Betts was preaching. It was like halfway through it, I just felt uh, something come over me. Um, my eyes filled with tears. And I just actually realized at that moment that uh, that God was saying, I had always, I wanted a relationship with God, but I always thought it was going to be like on a white horse with trumpets and a big flash of light and stuff. <laughs> and uh, I realized at Crossroads that day that like, this is your moment, Cliff. Um, excuse me. That, that this is your moment. And um, when Pastor Betts uh, gave the altar call at the end, I couldn't wait to raise my hand, and uh, I remember something inside me saying, don't do it, don't do it. If you do this, there's no turning back. And I realized later, you know, later on that that was Satan, you know, one final furious attempt, like, <laughs> don't do it. But I did. I couldn't wait to shoot my hand up, and uh, I didn't even wait till after the services ended. I ran up to the front over to the corner to get my Bible. <laughs> I didn't realize I was supposed to do that after, but anyway... <laughs> 
Um, That's a hunger for the word right there. I'm telling you, give me my Bible. (laughs) And after that, it was just, uh, I I can't describe how much fuller and richer that my life has been. Um, My marriage, my relationship with my friends, uh, it just all has taken on... uh, like a whole, it's like like I'm looking at life through a different set of glasses now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's been great. I, I, I read my Bible every day. Um, I uh, was baptized by uh, Pastor Bill Sammons uh, a year ago. And um, I'm just grateful. You know, I'm grateful for, you know, surviving 9-11. I'm grateful for, you know, my wife, my children, my life. But the thing I'm most grateful for in the wake of all this is that, uh, you know, I found Jesus. You know, I'm not going to say he found me because he never lost me. But uh, I found him. And that's probably the biggest gift uh, out of all this tragedy.